Hey friends, this is Brenna Blaine and you are listening to season four of Can I Say That? It is so good to be back in this makeshift podcast studio, aka my bedroom. I'm here every day. Let's let's get that straight. I'm here every day because I sleep in this room, but I am not here every day producing podcasts. And I had kind of forgot you guys were so gracious to me and allowing me to take a long break so that I could write a book. But I am deeply excited to get back into the swing of things. And let me tell you, season four, I have already done half the podcast interviews that we are doing for this season and the conversations that I have gotten to have with deep thinkers who care about how our relationship with God impacts the way that we live, the way that we speak, the way that we relate to other people, the way that we wrestle through things um, is just inspiring and it's it's convicting, to be honest. And today, I think we're kicking off season four with one of the best conversations. I'm really excited. This person has become a friend of mine, not just through the conversations surrounding the sexuality and gender conversation, but also just navigating this world of speaking and writing and doing theology as both a ministry and a vocation. It is an odd world to be in, especially being not yet 30 and going like, what, Lord, what are you, what are you doing? Um, And so I'm so excited to introduce you today, if you do not yet already know him, to Dr. Preston Sprinkle. Dr. Preston Sprinkle is a biblical scholar. He is a speaker, a podcaster, and a New York Times bestselling author, and is the co-founder and president of the Center of Faith, Sexuality, and Gender. And let me tell you right now, if you ever need a resource surrounding Christian sexuality, faith, or gender... That is the place to go. They have an incredible wealth of free resources, of training resources, of anything you could imagine for people who read, for people who like to watch things, for people who like to listen. They have an entire library. I always tell people, go there first. Okay, without further ado, please welcome Dr. Preston Sprinkle to the show. Well, first of all, I want to say this moment has been coming since 2019. I was like, hi, <laughs> I'm, you don't know me. I would like for you to be on my podcast. And you had an incredibly busy year that year. And now I tricked yeah. you into saying yes, because we're like kind <laughs> of friends now, I feel like. And so I think that's how that works. It's like the Rumpelstiltskin I, I, wait, is, 2019 you reached out? Yeah, was that when Embodied came uh, out? No, that, that was 21. Oh, so maybe it was People to be Loved. Oh, okay. That was a while ago. It was my yeah. pursuit of... Okay. We started in 2019, so I, I had I had big dreams, Yeah. and yeah. they weren't achieved until much later. In life, so. <laughs> I had known of your name, I think, through social media. But wasn't that familiar? I think Greg Coles had a conversation with. No, no, it was. Um, I think I, I threw out like, "Hey, who who do you think I should have on the podcast?" And like, you know, I was getting all these responses. Nt Wright, like Obama, you know, all these like, but literally half, like fifty percent, was your like cultish fan club. They were like, 
Brandon Blaine, Brandon Blaine, Brandon, but like over and over and over and over. <laughs> so I'm like, oh my gosh, I gotta. When you say cultish, I just imagine like everyone else also has this exact tattoo on their neck. <laughs> we all have black eyes. Probably should take this part out. So funny. Okay, so a question. Okay, I love when you see those interviews and they're like, does Obama, and then they like rip the thing off and they're like, have a dog. Okay, so I keep getting two okay. questions about you. So the first one is, did Preston Sprinkle used to be a pastor? I have never been a full-time paid uh, pastor before, no. And I qualify that because I was on a preaching team, a rotation at uh, Cornerstone. When Francis left... I was one of like four of the stage preachers and I was teaching at the Bible college, which was kind of associated with the church, but I wasn't technically on pastoral staff. And then I was at another church where I was on an elder team where I was preaching like once a month again, I think they even paid me for that, but it wasn't like your traditional like paid pastor position. So the answer is, but what, by what most people mean by pastor, no, I've never been a paid pastor. Okay. And you did you never do youth ministry? You seem like a youth ministry guy. I mean, volunteered in seminary. I, you know, again, kind of would, yeah, one of the volunteers, but never like a a Mm full-time paid youth pastor. Okay. And then you kind of answered the other question, which was, was Preston Sprinkle ever a professor at a college? Yes. Yeah. Three different colleges. Yeah. 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 For a number. Of, so, uh, I taught briefly at Nottingham university, which in the, in the UK, uh, the word professor is reserved for like elite been teaching for 15 years. Like, so I wouldn't use the phrase I was, I was a, you know, I was like an assistant, uh, actually there they call them lecturers, but yeah, I taught at a university there and then at Cedarville university for two years was a professor. And then five, seven years at eternity Bible college. So yeah, about almost 10 years, I guess. That's why, that's why your last book was so hard for me to read. Like there's too many big words. <laughs> no, but it was great. I, I am excited. Are we allowed to talk about that on oh, here? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Exiled. It's um, when is it coming out? Uh, I think the plan is for exiles, it's right? Exiles, the church in the shadow of empire. I, I believe March of 2024 is I think what the plan is. It's done. It's yeah. now it's in, actually I have one more rev- Manuscript review, which I'll probably just pass because I've read it like a thousand times. So um, yeah, it's pretty. It's basically done. I thought it was yeah. such a beautiful book because I think there are so many. Maybe um, it speaks to the argumentative nature of people who are saying, "Well, but this is what I want to cling to." It's it's like mm. giving a biblical frame of reference for why we are called to be. I think at the end of the book, you you call it a prophetic witness. Um, so I'm excited for people to be able to read it, but today we are talking about your other book, your other current new book. It's such a funky when you're (laughs) writing so many books at the same time. It's amazing. But what is your new book? Can you give us a short summary of the book? Um, and what is the main motivation around writing it? Yeah. So it's called, uh, does the Bible support same sex marriage, uh, 21 conversations from a historically Christian view. But, um, and, and if anybody's familiar, uh, I guess with me, they, and you know, they immediately probably associate me with other books I've written on sexuality or gender. Um, I guess the first question I often get is like, oh, how is this one different? You know, or some people say this one seems to be going backwards. Like you're going back to the basics of like, 
you know, just looking at the theological conversation. Um, so the backstory is in, in 2015, I came out with a book called People to be Loved. On It was a more of a holistic journey, my journey in understanding the conversation around same-sex sexuality. Uh, there's a lot of theology, a lot of Bible, but also a lot of like practical stuff, relational stuff, you know, try to inter- interweaving. Um, it, 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 I mean, it really was just kind of my journey into the conversation and being kind of like thrown off by, thrown, is that the right word? Like um, impacted by how poorly the evangelical church, generally speaking, has handled the conversation and how many how much relational collateral there's been a lot of LGBT people raised in a church and just have had really bad relational experiences. And so, um, the book is kind of, yeah, it's kind of like my, you know, inroad in that conversation. Now that was 2015 that launched a lot of, you know, speaking opportunities ended up leading into a nonprofit that I now lead the center for faith, sexuality, and gender. So I've been doing like full-time like leadership, training, if you want to call it that, um, on LGBT questions for almost a decade in general, but about, you know, last six, seven years full time. So all that to say, you can imagine all of the questions I've gotten over the years. So what about this? What about that? What about the, you know, so, and whenever I talk, I do an open Q and a, and I get, you know, all the way from genuine questions to pushbacks to challenges to, you know, just angry, you know, non-questions, you know, so this book, uh, does the Bible support same-sex marriage is basically me responding to what I would consider the top 21 arguments for same-sex marriage, or you can almost frame it 21 arguments against the traditional view of marriage. You know, has the Bible been mistranslated? Was Paul even talking about what we're talking about today? Um, uh, isn't the traditional view harmful towards LGBT people? Isn't, you know, love is love. Like why can't, why would God create someone to be gay and then say it's not okay? You know, these kind of things. So uh, this book is really just a, a response to all of the, all of those um, questions that I've gotten over the years. And one of the, I guess it's, it's, it's primarily a series of responses, but the overarching framework of the book is trying to help people to have better conversations as well. Um, and that's probably, you know, my, my opening chapter is all about how to have a profitable conversation. I personally think that that's, I don't know, like that, that, um, you, you can dig around and find good, solid responses to all the arguments. The one thing I just haven't seen is people talking about, you know, yeah. How to even go about conversations across volatile issues, you know? So that first chapter can really apply to politics. It can apply to climate change, you know, like any any of these hot hot button issues. I just feel like there's a lot of yelling and screaming and um, not a lot of curiosity about what the other person is actually saying. There's a lot of straw manning going on and misrepresentation. And, and, and I just say, we just, we, we have to go about this conversation much better. If we're going to have a more, if we're going to have a voice that people actually want to listen to. So, um, yeah, I'm excited about the first chapter, honestly. <laughs> what percentage do you think of like an entire meaningful conversation that actually changes um, or informs someone of something new? What percentage would you say has an impact on, or I guess what percentage needs to be out of a place of empathy and kindness? Whereas, because I think so many people approach, especially this topic saying like, I have to know everything. I have to know about the language. Mm. I have to know about the root words. I have to know what Paul meant. 
And I think, I think we're like, I, I think we're starting in the wrong place. I think that that's a fascinating question. That, that really is the heart behind that, that first chapter. And really the first chapter bleeds into the whole rest of the book. Like it controls how I even go about the mm. more intellectual you know, responses. Well, according to Jonathan Haidt, he's a, a, a pretty renowned moral or social psychologist. Uh, he would say 90%. Me, <laughs> uh, me, well, here, let me back up. Um, he uses an analogy of an, of a rider on top of an elephant and the rider, the little, you know, human rider at the top represents our, our rational thinking, our intellect, and the 90%, and then the elephant represents the other 90%. Well, sorry, the elephant represents our intuition, our emotions, our gut feelings, you know, and he says, we believe things kind of like how, how this rider and elephant are, are moving, you know, like the, the elephant is going to go where it's going to go. If he sees a piece of food or whatever he wants to eat, like, and the rider can kind of maybe steer him a little bit, but we're, we are largely driven by our intuitions, our emotions, wanting to believe certain things. And then our rationality will kind of, is the press secretary. It'll kind of justify what is the direction it's, we're already going. So yeah, I, you know, I often say, you know, how we believe is just as important as what we believe. Like the manner in which we hold our beliefs are so, so, so important. We as Christians, you know, I mean, we want our beliefs to not just be listened to, but, uh, but entertained. Uh, we want people to actually consider what we have to say. And especially when it comes to sexuality, I've just found anecdotally and just through reading psychological research that, that, you know, that tone matters, that posture matters, that, uh, um, how we in, engage another, well, how, how, how we either humanize and honor or dehumanize and disrespect the other person and their viewpoints, you know, using snarky statements or just trying to get a word in or, or are we genuinely being like curious about another person's viewpoint? And I just, I just, I, yeah, I, I I just recently listened to a long debate. I I, I won't get into the details, but it was between a very conservative debater kind of person and another person who, a friend of mine who's gay, but you know, he's, he's following very passionately a traditional sexual ethic and the debater guy was, it just, there, there was, you could just tell within seconds, there was zero like curiosity about the other person's viewpoint. He was there to win uh, the argument, to win the debate, to show his view to be correct. And from, from the second he opened his mouth, he could tell that for the next three hours, that was his goal. And he was good at it. He was, he was, he was good at um, winning arguments or trying to make it sound like at least that he had a a more sophisticated uh, perspective. And when we go about this conversation, when we Christians, let's just say we who, those of us who hold to a traditional sexual ethic, if, if we're not genuinely curious about the other viewpoint or other viewpoints, um, then what makes us think somebody's going to be genuinely curious about our viewpoint? You know, if we're not actually listening to their person and trying to understand where they're coming from, that's not going to be reciprocate or, you know, people are going to reciprocate kind of our posture and, and this goes for both sides. So if people are listening and maybe they affirm same sex marriage and you're just so frustrated at your conservative parents, whatever. And, and you just are always, you know, just, you know, how could you vote for Trump? Or how could you do this and that? What do you, you have this bigoted, you know, what? like that's just, that's just going to build a massive relational wall and nobody's going to want to listen to you. People are just going to hunker down, defend their position. I can keep going on, but um, yeah, it's, it's, it's absolutely huge. uh, The posture in which we 
hold our beliefs. Have you found this, Brenna? I mean, you're in this conversation too. I would love your thoughts on this. I mean, I something that has constantly came up for me when I'm approached with the opposite mm-hmm. belief is that I've never been approached from a place of someone going like, I want freedom for you so badly. Like mm-hmm. I've always been approached with, you're wrong. Your mm-hmm. marriage is going to end in a, a divorce. You're like, just like, it just seems like so almost like vitriol. Like I've never, I've just never been approached by someone who I felt like they genuinely cared for me. But while you're talking, I'm, th- I'm thinking wow. about how as Christians, we're supposed to be the embodiment of Christ and thinking about Jesus's interactions with people in the New Testament and how Jesus holds ultimate truth. So he knows what he's talking about, right? And yet we see him time after time, like enter into these conversations from a place of curiosity. That is like, I don't think I've ever stopped to think about that until you started talking just now and going, wait, like Jesus was the most gentle and the most empathetic and the most willing to listen, even though he also knows truth. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And we all know how it feels. We we all know how rare it is, first of all. But you know, those Mm. unique, almost kind of, alarming conversations you have with somebody where somebody takes a genuine interest in, 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 in you. Like, the, you know, those terrible times at church when they do like, you know, a minute and a half. Now everybody greet one another. It's the most awkward. Everybody hates it. You know, it's like, how do I get out of this conversation? But you, I mean, there's every now and then you get somebody like, what's your name? You know, Preston, you know, he's like, what do you do? And even that's always loaded. I'm like, oh, where do you? <laughs> Usually when I tell people what I do, it just ends the conversation, you know, um, people don't know, but you know, I explain, okay, this is what I do. And like, Oh, well tell me about that. Like, how, how's that going? What's what you know, like, so what exactly, so how, you know, and they start asking, they're like, actually they're drawn into who you are and they start asking genuine conversations. Like the rare times that I think all of us experience that it's just like, Oh my gosh, I feel so seen. I feel so like honored and loved and, and and it just shows that wow, this is an honest uh, person. Like they're just they're just gen genuinely interested in me as a person. I mean, if Christians, again, let's just keep it to the topic, I guess. If Christians who hold a traditional sexual ethic, you know, and they're in these kind of conversations, like if they took that approach, just set aside trying to convert people just for a second, you know, and just try to get to know this image bearer standing in front of you genuinely take interest in their maybe concerns for, you know, a traditional view, maybe why they're passionate about this alternative view. Like, and here's the thing, we can be genuinely curious and interested in hearing that perspective without agreeing with it. I mean, it's what every psychologist does, right? When you go in and you pour your heart out and hopefully they're listening and hopefully they're not agreeing. Hopefully they're not like everything you say is correct. You know, like, no, they're, they're there to help you, you know, navigate whatever you're going through. And, um, and I think we can do that. I, I, showing genuine curiosity absolutely does not mean you're like, um, agreeing with everything the person is, is saying. So, um, I think that's the fear, right? Don't you think? I mean, I think that's, people think if you show too much love or curiosity, then, you're affirming their position. That's just, we don't do that in other kinds of human interaction. I mean, but. no, 
No. And I think that's a great point. I want to I wanna take a little bit of a turn more into the contents of the book. Something that I, I think the two most common arguments I come across mm-hmm. um, are very similar. I, I would maybe frame them by saying like progressive arguments, sure. but I'm curious about which one comes up the most for you. Do you find that mm-hmm. most people truly believe that the Bible is prescriptive? So they open up the Bible and say, Okay, yeah, it is talking about same-sex relationships, but I that they believe morality has changed over time. Mm-hmm. Or do you believe, have you come across more people who would say, mm-hmm. actually, it was mistranslated, this isn't correct? There, you know, it's, it's, I used to have kind of a top two, three, four kind of arguments that I would often face. But it honestly really depends on, the person's environment, their journey, are they deconstructing from evangelicalism as a whole or are they, you Mm. know, wanting to maintain a more like, um, bibliocentric faith, but they're just kind of more thinking these verses maybe have been misinterpreted or yeah. So it's hard to, it's hard to say, okay. But some of the big ones, um, that I've encountered over the years across different kind of groups of people. Um, the, the one that used to be much more popular, it's kind of, it's grown out of popularity among scholars, at least it's still, it's still definitely around is, um, that consensual adult loving mutual, you know, same sex sexual relationships. They just weren't, that wasn't a thing in the ancient world. So whatever, whatever these five or six prohibition passages are saying, they're not addressing what we're, uh, debating today whether two people of the same sex can fall in love have a mutual non you know oppressive non you know abusive kind of relationship um that one um i still see i still see that scattered throughout quite quite a bit in the in the scholarly world even a lot of affirming scholars know that the evidence for that view, the historical evidence is, is pretty severely lacking. Um, and so you don't, I don't see as much in that. It was really popular in the eighties and nineties among academics, but not so much anymore. Um, but I still do see it, you know, in, in kind of in the air. I I think most people are going to, at some point say the traditional view is just unjust and harmful, you know, toward, um, LGBT or let's just LGB people. Um, if anything, it seems unjust, you know, um, we now know that some people are simply born gay. Uh, we know, you know, why, why would God make someone gay and then say, it's not okay. Um, why can't they, you know, gay people, you know, have the same right to love the way straight people do. And, and it's framed oftentimes in, in a lot of justice language that, that seems pretty, uh, pervasive. Um, I have seen a growing, trend among people who have maybe deconstructed from a conservative evangelicalism toward maybe a more progressive version of Christianity where they, I think they would take the view that you kind of hinted at more of like, sure, the ancient biblical writers, they probably were against all forms of same sex relationships. They were also very misogynistic and, and they also, you know, had, had, you know, didn't condemn slavery. And, you know, so, so they would say that the biblical writers were just kind of stuck in this kind of patriarchal way of thinking. Um, so, so that would be more of a broader kind of approach to 
what is biblical authority? How do we draw modern ethical norms from this ancient text? Um, it's there, I think their approach would live more at that kind of broader biblical uh, level. I was just listening to a podcast the other day of, I remember the name of it, but it was it's kind of a deconstruction podcast. And, and that was the approach they took. They're like, yeah, to me, it's they kind of point out all these kind of old school, you know, really kind of horrific things in scripture that nobody follows, you know, um, and say, so, yeah, these are ancient writers. And so it, it kind of is like whatever they say about sexual ethics is just kind of outdated anyway. So um, does that sound right to you? What, what is, what am I missing? The, the mistranslation of the Bible, that seems to be growing in popularity too. Although I, I've been in some context where I asked for a show of hands, how many have heard of, you know, that the Bible in, in 1946 or whatever is, Added the word homosexual to the Bible. And, and I've been in such some context where maybe 10% will raise their hands that they've even heard of that argument. Other contexts where that's kind of the first one people throw out. So again, this is where it really does depend on different, different contexts you're in. Um, you, 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 is that the one you've heard a lot recently? Or Yeah, that's, I mean, that's the one that I think is most popular around the Portland area, I would say. I have a question about that. Sure. I'm wondering if you agree, because I know I loved, you talked about it um, on Sean's podcast, and I thought it was so yeah. great. That's how I try to talk to my students about it. How I was like, do you believe basically that homosexuality was the wrong word choice? How would, how would you want to see the language change mm. around these um, prohibition? So let me, I guess, frame that specific argument. The argument says that in 1946, and that's the, that's when the revised standard version came out that they used the word homosexual or homosexuals to translate first Corinthians six, nine, which I think a lot of people are probably familiar with it. You know, it says, you know, neither the, what is it? The swindlers nor adulterers nor, and then some translations say, nor, you know, homosexuals will inherit the kingdom of God. Then it says, you know, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were cleansed and everything. Um, and so there's, there's a pair of Greek words that aren't relevant that you know what they are, but just, you know, for kicks and giggles, it's, it's arsenokoites and malakoi. And the word arsenokoites is a little tricky. It's the only time this Greek word is used in all of Greek literature. Like Paul's the first one to use it. Um, so there's debates about how to translate it. Um, but this argument says that this translating arsenokoites with the English word homosexuals is a terrible translation. It's not what the word means. And this is where I I 100 percent agree. <laughs> it's a hideous translation. It's terrible because what is homosexual? And I know most people use the term gay instead of homosexual, but this is the word we're talking about. You know, homosexual just means somebody who is oriented toward or attracted to the same sex. It doesn't, it doesn't mean it doesn't say anything about somebody's sexual activity any any more than heterosexual says anything about how much sex, you know, a heterosexual is getting. They could be, you know, uh, uh, what are they called? Incel? Uh, What's it called? The uh, involuntary cell. Anyway, it's okay. The incel community, their community now. Okay. All right. <laughs> um, you know, so, so, so simply being oriented toward the same or opposite sex is nothing about whether you're engaging in sexual activity. The Greek word, I would say rather clearly means somebody who is engaging in same-sex sexual behavior. Not talking about somebody who has an attraction but might not be engaging in 
same sex sexual behavior. So um, clearly talking about sexual activity, sexual behavior. And so you get, I, so I, I agree. This can be really damaging. Imagine a, you know, 14 year old kid attracted to the same sex. He is a quote homosexual. And he reads this verse saying homosexuals cannot inherit the kingdom of God. That's that, that can be, and has been a pretty, um, traumatic event for somebody who's trying to follow Jesus. And I've stories of people who that's been just, you know, so yes, that's a terrible translation. There's only, I mean, most popular English translations do not use the term homosexual there. I think the new American standard still does. Um, the old, the NIV corrected itself. The RSV corrected itself. You can't even find online a 1946 RSV. I tried. I Googled forever. I couldn't find it. I, it doesn't mean it's not even available anywhere. So um, the CSB, the newer CSB, I, th- I think the older one did translate First Timothy that has the same word that way, but then they adjusted it. Um, so most translations, the ESV, have abandoned that that translation. Um, now, sorry, I, I'm taking a long time to get to the actual point. <laughs> so some people point out that this has been mistranslated, which I 100% agree with. But then they will maybe make a leap saying, therefore, the Bible as a whole doesn't actually prohibit same-sex sexual relationships. But it's like, well, that, that's a logical leap that um, should be questioned. You know, I mean, you, you don't need – there's many other ways to say that marriage is between a man and woman or that same-sex relationships are sinful. Um, you, don't, you don't need the word homosexual, homosexuals, homosexuality, homosex, anything uh, to communicate. Uh, the traditional view of of marriage. So, um, do you think that translation has played um, a role in? We've kind of seen this wave throughout different church, um, like eldership boards, and like the higher up. I don't know if it went through SBC. Mm-hmm. I think PCA was one where they were making choices towards people who have stories like mine, who are saying, "Hey, if you identify as." same-sex attracted, then you can't serve um, on a leadership team. No, It doesn't matter whether you're pursuing wow. a sexual biblical ethic or not. It just is the identifying key. Do you, do you find that that is kind of the main argument for that? That's an interesting question. I, I My assumption would be I, I think it might have played some – well, let me back up. First of all, the RSV translation – I mean, Brenna, go grab your RSV and we'll look at it. <laughs> okay, ask your mom for an RSV. She probably doesn't have one either. Your grandma probably doesn't. Have, it, it, it's not, I mean, it was, in fact, when it came out, it was kind of known as kind of like the more liberal trend. Yeah, it was seen, I remember in seminary, we would always say, oh, this is like the the liberal, you know, translation or whatever. So, I mean, it, 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 I don't think it played a massively influential role in like the evangelical church. The New American Standard, which still does translate it homosexuals, I think, that, that would play in some more conservative circles some influence. The NIV certainly back in 1984, but then those have been correct. So, I, yeah, I, 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 that translation choice has not been extremely widespread. So that's where I would kind of question maybe the – the massive potential impact that it, that it would have had. But, but certainly I, th- I think it played some role for sure. I, I think there's probably other factors um, that have contributed to some evangelicals saying if somebody, if somebody simply 
homosexual or attracted to the same sex and that that would exclude you from certain church positions, you know, or even church membership, maybe even. Um, yeah. I think it's probably yeah, a, 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 probably a conglomeration. Is that the right word? A combination of, of various factors that have contributed to that kind of perspective. Um, translation being maybe, maybe maybe one of them in some cases. Okay. I want to take a stroll walking through this idea of empathetic curiosity. And a question that always comes up for me is mm-hmm. I'm always curious why mm-hmm. maybe people with a more progressive mindset want to identify with the person of Jesus, but not his commands? That's an f- interesting question. Um, I, I, I would, uh, uh, to to enter inside the, the head of a progressive Christian right now, you might be listening, who might be screaming right now saying, yeah, conservatives do the exact same thing. <laughs> Love your enemies, you know, go sell all your stuff to the poor. So I, I, I um, I would say it's a common human, or let's just narrow it down, a common Christian as a whole problem to want to follow certain things Jesus says and not not others. Um, why, why, you know, um, why would progressives tend to cling more to certain words of Jesus and not others, or even Jesus over Paul or Jesus over other parts of the new Testament. Um, yeah, again, I, I think that's probably just symptom, symptomatic of, of a, of a tendency we probably all have. We're, we're going to gravitate to certain passages that, um, and, and ethical demands that, you know, maybe come easier for us or, or that we resonate with that, we, that we're already kind of valuing. And then we see Jesus affirming our values and say, yes, you know, Jesus is awesome. But then when he, you know, talks about sexual immorality and, 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 as a first century Jew, you know, in, in, in Matthew 15 or when he defines marriage in Matthew 19 or whatever, like, yeah, I think those statements aren't as palatable, palatable because people are bringing stuff to the text. But again, I'll be the first one to say we, we all, you know, we all have that, that tendency and struggle. I guess a question for myself is like, how do I bring myself like up to the threshold of always continuing to measure myself against God's word as someone who is living a normal life, who has, you know, kids screaming in the morning. And it's like, man, how, like, I'm, I'm maybe asking an almost impossible question, but how do we be faithful disciples that actually digest the entire word of God and not just what's easy? Oh man, I mean that's if I knew the answer, or more, more if I was practicing the answer, I'd probably be on the other side of the pearly gates right now. But um, I, I think the first step is simply admitting that we do do that. Like, let's not delude ourselves and think that we're the ones that are taking Jesus comprehensively or more seriously. And you know, I think having the so yeah, I think having the theological humility. Um, on no matter where you're at on your journey, I think theological humility is always a good thing. Um, and just yeah, being having the humble posture before God when you're when you're reading Jesus, when you're looking at Jesus, when you're encountering Jesus, to say genuinely, you know, open up to me, 
the areas that I need the most work on the, the, the things that are harder for me to do, you know, I, yeah. Um, so I think at least being aware that we're all going to be prone as humans to highlight certain aspects of Jesus that we like and downplay or, or, or ignore or brush over, um, certain aspects that we, we don't like, you know, um, yeah, I think just having that kind of posture is is a good starting place. Um, I think um, getting outside our echo chambers too, like not because that our, our our going back to Jonathan Haidt, you know, he talks about our our, high, our hive mind. You know that we are very hivish, like be like a beehive. Like we we're very drawn to echo chambers we're drawn to people who agree with us and, and we would love to finish each other's sentences and and that's not that's 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 good that's like good and beautiful and wonderful and i love that and i love those spaces they're so life-giving where you're just like ah oh, i can you know speak freely and people get it and we're you know so I'm, I'm not opposed to that i am opposed to just solely existing in those spaces you know like it's 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 also good to get outside of those environments and and again learn like be again i know you use the phrase over and over now but being genuinely curious and somebody who sees things a, a different way um and that's just so so hard in our polarized culture these days i mean just all the way down to like the algorithms being rigged to throw stuff our way that we already agree agree with you know you click on this video this video and the algorithm's like all right here's 10 more you know and, and it, it just it, it's I don't want to say the whole thing's rigged, but it's, I mean, when you go down this rabbit trail of like how so many social forces are fostering tribalism and polarization and stoking our fear and anger, like it's, it's getting more and more difficult to even want to venture outside of your tribe, your echo chamber. Um, and I, I don't, I don't know. I don't, other than just doing it and, and, and turning off your social media feed more often than, or I, like I being aware that, that these things are going on I, beyond that. I don't, I don't know. It's, it's, yeah, it's hard. I, I'm sorry. I'm so used to interviewing other people. I'm just so curious about what you're thinking, Brenda, but I, <laughs> what do you like, have you, what do you do? What, what are your thoughts on how to cultivate a more sensitivity to the hard parts of scripture that you might not naturally resonate with. I just kept thinking the whole time we were talking about this link between us wanting to change someone's mind and then like how we live. So I think whenever I'm asked about, you know, what's the most effective way to get someone to go from living a gay lifestyle, quote unquote, to like loving Jesus. My answer is like, love mm. God well, and then love mm. your friend well, and be a genuine person and have, I, it, it's not fair to call it the long game, but in my brain, I always call it the yeah. long game where it's like, maybe if we're just people who love the Lord well, and then out of that, love the people around us well. People, they'll notice. They'll notice there's a difference. They'll notice that 
I think that I in this world, especially now, the the phrase is being used more. I think Mark Sayers maybe had a book come out, um, the non-anxious presence of Jesus. Or something I've been talking about recently is like a disruptive peace. When like I think in the secular world, meeting people who have real peace is such yeah. a rare and strange and alluring thing that it becomes the person who is most peaceful becomes the most disruptive Mm. to the space around them because it's something totally new, right? It's like the opposite of a ripple Mm. in a pond. It's like sucking everything in. And I just, I find it so curious that we, and and it makes sense that we so often want the quick short mm. answers of how to win an argument or of how to have the mm. the most effective speech mm. or talk or book or whatever when it's like actually the way of Jesus is transformative and it starts with us and mm. then it transforms out and i i think that's just something that i'm constantly thinking about is what is real discipleship and how does that impact the people around you it was uh, eugene peterson has that book one of his first ones a long obedience in the same direction kind of kind of a similar idea of of just that patient discipleship and and not feeling that desperate urge to have everything figured out you know yeah, you, you probably know I'm on this uh, this kind of study on what I think about women in ministry, and it's funny. I, you know, I started it maybe over a year ago, and people are asking me, "So where'd you land?" And I'm like, "Ask me like four years." I don't like it's it's I'm not at all like and I, I it's not to downplay the significance of where people land. Like the topic obviously is incredibly important, but like I just I just don't want to be driven by the kind of pace the information pace that the world is set. Like, you know, what, what if it just took us a, a, a while to really be patient and, and dig into an issue or, or even an aspect of, of a certain spirit, you know, uh, spiritual discipline or something like these things just, they, they, they take time. And I think it just, you know, it's, it's like, you know, the, the candy bar versus the, 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 the meal that took four hours to prepare, you know, like there's just, I, I, I would love to, and I know John Mark Comer's, you know, done a lot of work on this, but I just think that this needs to be talked about more in the church that, that, that well-rooted, robust, long lasting discipleship requires a lot of patience, um, intellectual patience, spiritual patience, um, and, and not wanting the, just the, the, the quickness of, of everything, you know? Yeah. I, I get asked a lot. Probably like you do. What do you think about this? What, what do you think about, you know, CRT critical race theory? I'm like, that, that's an entire discipline that people invest their whole lives in. You want me to like cook up some answer in five minutes or something or read a book or five books and think that I've, you know, have a, like a, a perspective worth listening to on critical race theory or something. So, um, yeah, it's unfortunate that once you get any kind of platform, people expect you to have some kind of, authoritative opinion on kind of everything but can you say that again (laughs) have you felt that Bretta? yeah and i think it's (laughs) i think there's like this i the the discipleship of the digital media in the digital age is this like rush to always have an opinion as fast as possible this next question i have for you i think sits really well in the same vein of what we're talking about but for the christian parent whose kid has just come out 
in all that you have seen throughout the years and the research that you've done, what you've read, but primarily through the relationships that you've gotten to walk with people through, what has been the best response um, or maybe the best way that you've seen parents mm-hmm. uh, do relationship with their kid who has come out mm-hmm. long term? I mean, gosh, this, you're asking me, I should ask you. Um, it, it, so whatever I'm about to say is, I guess, me simply relaying, you know, dozens and dozens of parent perspectives and, and, and LGBTQ perspectives that have said, here's what my parents did and they did it very well. Here's what my parents did. They did it poorly or typically it's, here's what my parents did. They, they were trying, but and it was rough for a little bit. And then, you know, we've either parted ways or, or have a great relationship, you know, I think, um, I, I, I think the best, well, I'll say several things. Number one, uh, I tell parents, you know, don't, don't freak out. It, this is, this is hard, Brandon, cause I'm often talking to parents after the fact, and then I'll say a bunch of things and they're like, failed that, failed that, failed that. I'm like, I, I'm not trying to heap shame, but you, there are things you can do to repair if you know, if you go back and say, gosh, if I had to do it over again, here's what I would have done. Like you can actually have that in most cases, that kind of, you know, conversation, even if you didn't respond well when they did come out. So yeah, I, I think um, being just, I'll say one more time, you know, as they're, if they come out to you, they, they might be angry. They might be in a, a, a moment of rage, might be in a, a moment filled with fear, trepidation. Typically, I mean, almost in almost every case, even if the parent child relationship is very good, even if the parent is very, very gracious and kind, even if the parent is already affirming, I've heard, <laughs> um, it can still be an incredibly fearful thing for the for the child, for the kid to do. And I think statistically it's something like the average is like at least three years from the time when they are, have come to grips with the fact that I think I'm gay or attracted to the same sex. And I don't think this is going away. They have to kind of keep that to themselves for several years before actually coming out to the parents. So the coming out moment typically is not, to use a baseball analogy, the first or second inning, it might be the seventh inning. You know, there's a lot of stuff going on here that has gone on that, that would be, you know, good for you to, you know, as you're invited in to, to, to understand. So, so, so no quick reactions. Don't freak out. Don't assume, you know, anything more than what they're telling you. And even what they're telling you, they might be using language that you're not, that you might be misinterpreting mom, dad, I think I'm gay that doesn't necessarily mean they're in a gay relationship. That doesn't even necessarily mean they believe in same sex marriage or whatever. Maybe they're still working through their theology. You know, there's, there's so many things you don't know um, that it's, it's, you have to take time to ask, you know, good, curious questions, genuine questions. Don't interrogate. uh, Don't ask too many questions. They might not want to answer too many questions right away. You know, be invited into that kind of conversation. And I, and I would say, you know, when you do, after doing a ton of listening, 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 curious listening, asking, you know, genuine, humble questions, you know, I would, my only response kind of that moment would be, you know, I want you to know that God loves you unconditionally and I love you unconditionally. And wherever this journey you're on ends up taking you, I will, I will, I will always be here, you know, for you. 
that doesn't mean you're going to agree with everything they're going to say and do. But I, I would say, I don't think you need to say that in that moment. To say, I will always be here for you. You don't need to give all the footnotes and caveats. And I, and I would also say, I, I would not jump into a theological or ethical conversation in that moment or even early on. Like I think the, the most fruitful theological conversations in the, these kind of relationships happen when there's a thick trust thick relationship of mutual trust um and that that foundation has been laid it's it's not really questioned i think from that firm foundation then we can kind of engage in a theological conversation and even then typically those are more fruitful and beneficial when the kid is initiating it they probably already know what you think they already know what you believe so it's not like you need to say well i want you to know and tell them what they already know you know like that that resist the need to kind of jump in and say that. But I think if they are asking theological questions, um, then yeah, I think that that's, um, that you can have those conversations, but again, those are best had when the relationship is, is really intact. And, and if, you know, if there's parents listening and they're like, Oh my gosh, no, I didn't do any of that or didn't do all that. I, I've seen some beautiful relationships restored when the parent just come, comes back five, 10, sometimes, sometimes 20 years later. And the parent says, you know, I've learned some stuff recently and I'm looking back and I feel like I, 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 I did some things, uh, wrong as a parent and I'm, and you know, I'm just truly sorry for that. And, and I want to love you better for here and out, you know, th- those kind of conversations can be so, so I've seen, yeah, they can be so powerful. Um, not, and they don't always work. You know, sometimes the relationship has been so severed that even trying to apologize or sometimes the kid might demand full agreement. Well, okay, so here's, you know, I'm trans. I, you know, do you believe that I'm actually the opposite sex? Or, you know, do you, do you actually affirm that same sex relationships are, are, you know, good and holy and wholesome and everything. And and if there's a demand for agreement that that that's a tough place um, to be, because yeah, I don't think any relationship, any healthy relationship, operates that way um but uh but I th- yeah i think you got to navigate those carefully you know being able to say I, c- I can't i can't go against what i what i believe but i will love you across disagreement the best i can you know and, and for some people that's just not not going to be enough and there's, there's only so much you can do you know okay i know there's some people listening to the to the podcast going oh man i was so excited to buy the book because my purpose was memorizing all the arguments and using them well. So who is this book for actually? Like, what is the purpose? What What is your greatest hope with this book? And then where can we find it? Yeah. I mean, you can find it at uh, just Amazon and wherever else books are sold. Um, my purpose is, I, I guess I, I know you're always supposed to have like one main purpose. There are a couple different purposes, three different purposes maybe. One is to cultivate better conversations, uh, better tone, better posture. Um, number two, I, I do want to give, um, I, I do think that in that, uh, Christians should know not just what they believe, but why they believe it. And I, I encounter a lot of people who who say, look, I believe in traditional marriage, but my, you know, maybe they have a kid who came home and told them the Bible's mistranslated. Maybe they're quoting Greek words and the parents like, Oh, I've never heard that before. I don't know how to respond or, you know, I, I get those emails a lot, you know, uh, what do you think about this? What do, they, what do you think about that? And, and it's usually people that are like, I, I don't 
think this is an accurate argument, but I also don't know how to respond. You know, like, is there an intelligent, thoughtful response to this? Or, you know, or have we gotten this thing wrong? You know, so it's for people that are looking for a genuine answer to some of these pushbacks. Um, I don't want it to be simply an ammunition in someone's artillery to go blast their opponent. You know, that's obviously as hopefully it's clear now, that's not the goal, but I do think we should be able to give thoughtful responses to thoughtful questions. Um, and if our, if the traditional view of marriage is truly the best reading of scripture we should have, there should be a response to all, all, you know, all of the sometimes very good and, and thoughtful pushback. So, um, and, and, you know, I, another purpose, I guess, is somebody who is, you know, same sex attracted and maybe they're genuinely, you know, just wrestling with where they're at theologically. And they're looking for not somebody to just simply affirm to say what they want to hear, but they're like, I, I actually do want to know what does the Bible say? And I'm willing to kind of live with, you know, am I going to embrace it? Or am I going to say, you know what, I just can't follow that. But I, I just, I want to, I do want to have a good, clear understanding on these kind of back and forth arguments. So, um, and I've met that, you know, <laughs> yeah, I've met a few of those over the years and those are always interesting conversations. I had one person met me, I was speaking at a conference and he comes up, <laughs> he says, I, don't, I'm, I won't swear on your podcast, but you know, he comes up and says, I want you to know, I want, I want to say something to you. F you. <laughs> I said, all right. That's a, and what's your name, you know? And he said, I'm gay. And I was convinced of the affirming view. And then I read, I think it was people to be loved or something. And I'm like, you know what? I th- I think I can't, I can't argue. I, th- I think you're actually very, very correct. And he was, he was, you know, he, he was, he was, he was half joking, you know, but he's like, yeah, I, I, I am now following a, tr- a traditional sexual ethic and it's not easy, but I, I do think it's right. I, I believe it's right before God. And, and so, and then he ended up saying, so, so on top of FU, thank you um, for helping me understand. <laughs> so, um, yeah. To end for people who are maybe just being introduced to you or even introduced to this idea of like genuine curiosity for the other, for the person who um, is so different from themselves. Can you just give us like your, a small commercial for what theology in the raw attempts to do in the, in these conversations that you have? Yeah. So theology in raw is a podcast that I've been hosting for almost, uh, nine years now. Um, over a hundred, a thousand up over a thousand episodes. I have conversations across all kinds of different topics. I would say sexuality and gender, maybe 10 to 20% of those conversations. But, uh, we, I talk about, um, it, it's help, it's helping the church, helping Christians think, um, Christianly about, uh, theological and cultural if- issues by having, curious conversations with a diverse range of thoughtful people. I think that's my mission statement. So um, it really is through curious conversations with people on various sides of various issues um, as, as a means of learning and, and, and opening up our minds and, and engaging and, and agreeing and disagreeing and, and thinking deeply about, about various things. So um, yeah, it's fun. I, I, it's, it's one of the funnest, funnest things I do in life is, is podcasting. So um I have a, so a personal website, PrestonSpringle.com. Um, the, the ministry that I help run, the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender, deals specifically with 
the intersection between faith, sexuality, and gender, obviously. And um, so that website is centerforfaith.com. Tons of tons of resources um, and different things on there. Can I say that? It's a podcast created by my mom, Brad If you would like to hear more about my mom, Francie, you can go on Instagram and show it. Bun on my head or go to www.brailboy.com.